Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Anthropology podcast. My name is Aparna Gopalan, and today I will be speaking with Professor Hannah Appel of UCLA about her open source book, The Power of Debt, Identity and Collective Action in the Age of Finance. The book was published by the Institute on Inequality and Democracy in 2019 and co-authored by Sao Whitley, a PhD candidate in gender studies at UCLA, and Caitlin Klein advisor to the Securities and Exchange Commission on derivatives enforcement issues. As the upcoming 2020 U.S. election finally brings questions of economic justice center stage, this powerful short book focuses on the urgent problem of staggering economic inequality through the lens of mass indebtedness. After assessing the grim situation, stagnating wages, historic levels of household debt, and the impossibility of accessing the means of life without debt, the authors ask whether we can organize against the injustices of debt as debtors, as we once did against oppressive workplaces as workers. What goes into producing a politically salient identity category such as debtor? What do actual examples of debtor organizing tell us about the promises and perils of such organizing? What does it take to challenge the power of big banks and mighty investors? As an example, we discuss the strike that I am currently on with Harvard Graduate Students' Union, speculating on how labor uprisings could benefit from concerted coalition building with debtors. At Harvard, for example, undergraduates are saddled with unrepayable loans so they can access an education provided by graduate students saddled with unrepayable rents and bills. If the two groups could unite, what would be possible? In our conversation, Professor Hannah Appel answers this and many other questions in a refreshingly spirited yet accessible style. Tune in and listen to her thought-provoking, well, thoughts. Enjoy. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. So I wonder if you could start by telling the listeners a bit about your intellectual and political biography. Um, How did you come to become an anthropologist and what has brought you to focus on the question of debt? Yeah, of course. So I think that um, I'll probably start with the fact that right after I graduated from college, I did a program called an MPhil, which is sort of a like... um, British Empire version of uh, what we would call in the United States a master's degree. And I say British Empire version because I did it in Kingston, Jamaica for two years. And they had a program there called, still do, it's a fabulous program called Caribbean Cultural Studies. It's an MPhil in Caribbean Cultural Studies. And I had originally gone down there because of some undergrad, I was an undergraduate anthro major actually, and I had been really interested in you know, what I now know to call linguistic anthropology and things. It was kind of the, the dawn of the theoret- body of theory around globalization. And I was interested in thinking about language and globalization and what people were talking about then, creolization of languages. And I was thinking about hip hop and Jamaican dance hall, kind of the ways that those musical genres had crossed oceans with migrants um, and how 
uh, sort of language was shared between those two forms. But I, so that was kind of what I did as an undergrad. But when I got to Kingston to do the MPhil in that Caribbean cultural studies program, you know, it was a program that was deeply informed by people like Stuart Hall. Um, you know, I remember and uh, as a kid, I mean, I was basically a kid. I thought of it as a kind of, um, Black Atlantic Afrocentric program in a way that my own undergrad education hadn't been. I think now with sort of slightly more grown up language, I would say it's, it was just a program that sort of refused the white supremacy of the academy. Um, but that was very new to me. Um, and one of the things that I came across in the work that I was doing there, both in my coursework and in my research, were the ways that Jamaican musicians in particular, but people more broadly talked about, you know, the system, Babylon, stuff like that. that. Those are kind of the words that people were using. And I realized in those two years that I wanted to understand what that was, right? Like what, what did an ethnography of Babylon in the sense that Jamaican musicians were using that term, what would an ethnography of the system look like? And I didn't have the words obviously for it that I have now, but now I would say I was basically forming an interest in global political economy. Um, and so this wonderful documentary film, Life and Debt by Stephanie Black came out while I was actually living down um, in Kingston. And that was a helpful way, you know, to start thinking about the effects of structural adjustment programs, the IMF, the World Bank, et cetera. And I ended up um, doing some work around that for several years after I finished my MPhil and moved back home to the Bay Area. And what ended up happening essentially is that I decided to go back to grad school in anthropology. And again, I didn't have the words for it at that point, but wanting to, wanting to think about global political economy. And again, this is all in retrospect to have the language for it, but sort of like what does an ethnography of political economy look like, right? So if the questions are what we might conventionally consider macroeconomic questions, what does ethnography as a methodology have? Um, how can it tell us new stories? How can it open up things that seem to be foregone conclusions? So that's kind of what I ended up doing in grad school. Um, I got a PhD in anthropology, and it was just a really incredible moment in my department. In particular, one of my committee members, Sylvia Yanagisako, was sort of was part of a a group of scholars who were very intentionally crafting an a sort of renewed anthropology of capitalism and calling it an anthropology of capitalism. And this has now become something that some of us know as the Jens Collective. So, you know, Sylvia Yanagisako, Anat Singh, Karen Ho, all of them were very present um, while I was a student. And I feel like I was very much in that orbit and reading all of their work and witnessing without knowing it as their thoughts as a kind of um, intel intellectual collective evolved. But it was certainly during grad school where I would start to say, you know, people say, oh, what are you doing? And I say, oh, I, you know, I work on the anthropology of capitalism. Um, so I even think that basic sort of choice of framing, that basic conceptual choice, that basic language choice was very helpful for me at that point. And then I went off to Equatorial Guinea, which is a small country in Central Africa, which was at that point a relatively new oil producer. And specifically, I mean, U.S. transnational, but U.S. based oil and gas firms were just kind of setting up shop in Equatorial Guinea. Um, and ended up doing a bunch of research there in and around the U.S. oil firms in Equatorial Guinea. And I was there during the um, sort of onset of the 2008, what's various called the Great Recession, the crash, et cetera. So I came, so that was going on while I was in the field and I was kind of following it from afar. And then when I came back to Stanford, I was so, which is where I did my PhD, I was... Um, 
I was fascinated by the crisis because it was really a moment, and it's hard to imagine now, but it was really a moment where sort of high finance had become visible in people's everyday lives in new ways, but we actually, or I, I shouldn't say we, many of us, myself included, did not have the theoretical or, or empirical tools to understand the relationship between sort of high finance and household indebtedness. Um, and it's funny to say now, because obviously a sort of large body of literature mushroomed out of it, including bringing up literature that had been talking about that for decades b- before the crash and that we just weren't paying attention to. So I, I started running something called Capitalism's Crises with my um, dear cohort mate and friend, Raymond Mackay, um, out of the Stanford Humanities Center. And we brought in a bunch of people, brought in people to talk together who don't normally talk together. So, you know, kind of critical theorists of capitalism with people from the Stanford Business School and, you know, just trying to seed those conversations. And then I graduated and I went to New York. And I graduated in 2011, so like, you know, June 2011, and I moved to New York in September 2011. And if anybody is listening to this story of somebody who fancies themselves an anthropologist of capitalism and is thinking about the Great Recession and is thinking about New York in 2011, what I basically moved into was Occupy Wall Street. Um, And I remember it's actually, you know, to the extent that some of your audience is comprised of anthropology nerds. There were several people, anthropologists from the University of Chicago, um, who had like a little thing where they got drinks every once in a while. And I knew some of them, but I didn't know others, but some of them knew I was newly in town. So I remember so clearly, I went out to drinks with Michael Ralph, Biela Coleman, I think Yaramar Bonilla was there, and David Graeber was there. And so we're, you know, just getting drinks and talking about whatever. And David (laughs) says... Oh yeah, you know, I was down on Wall Street yesterday and I don't know, you know, people are are thinking about doing some kind of protest or some kind of movement. I don't know what it's going to turn into, but you know, you guys should come down and check it out. But this is before there had been nothing in the news. I had never heard anything about it. I've never been on social media, but I wasn't on social media at the time, so I certainly don't know, you know, maybe it was circulating in forums that I didn't yet know about. But David saying that was the first I'd ever heard of it. And I kind of didn't think much of it, and then 2 days later, sort of a kettling there was, an, there was an action on the Brooklyn Bridge when protesters took the Brooklyn Bridge. Cops kettled them and pepper sprayed many of them. And of course, this prompted the sort of mass coverage in the media. And so from that point on, I was in a very um, unstructured postdoctoral position. And from that point on, I just went down to Occupy Wall Street every day. And I will say, and I say this, it's embarrassing to say, but I think it's important to say that, you know, I had this orientation to it that was like, oh, I have a PhD in, you know, anthropology of capitalism. I've read a lot of Marx. I like, I had this idea that I like knew what the fuck was going on (laughs) and that somehow the knowledge that I had you know, produced, been part of, et cetera, while I was in graduate school, positioned me as some kind of like privileged expert on on these topics. And I say that because when I got down there, I just realized this sort of yawning chasm between talking about Marx in a seminar and a kind of idle and like an even implicit sort of anti-capitalist thrust of critical theory more broadly, perhaps the anthropology of capitalism specifically. And I know that's not necessarily like a fixed bibliographic signifier, 
but that that while I was in graduate school had felt like it had a kind of profound and dare I say radical political thrust. And then I got down to Occupy Wall Street and I was like, oh my God, like I don't, I, I had no idea what it actually meant in a kind of embodied sense and in a risky fucking sense to say, and not even to say, I know this is wrong. I know this is what we should do. We didn't even know how to say that. I did. I mean, I still don't know how to say that, right? That's like a lifetime and beyond of work. I mean, that's kind of the intergenerational work. So, but it is just, so I spent that entire year, you know, in and around Occupy Wall Street. The people who facilitated my postdoc were very generous and supportive of me for the most part. Um, and I moved back to the Bay Area that May, um, which is, as I said, where I'm from. But just as I was moving back, a group was getting started called Strike Debt. And that group had a kind of emergent analysis, you know, after we'd all been at this in various and multiple ways for about a year of saying, you know what, there's something that so many of us are talking about here and we hadn't yet sort of pulled the political thread, the empirical thread, the analytical thread, which is to say that we're talking about household debt. And even then we wouldn't have called it household debt, but we would have said, you know, People here are talking about, so of course, the sort of obvious entry point into that is the mortgage crisis and inability to pay mortgage debts, right? But then people were also talking about student debt. People were also talking about going bankrupt for medical care. Of course, people are talking about generalized precarity, right? Having to put credit cards on, um, sorry, having to put groceries on a credit card, et cetera. So there was a way that the sort of centrality of debt across basic needs like debt having stepped in again, now I can say this before sort of declining wages um, as a way to finance basic needs became clear to the wonderful people who started Strike Debt. I was not among them, but very quickly gravitated toward groups that were doing actions and writing. And then I moved back to the Bay Area and started Strike Debt Bay Area. Um, and I have stayed active with those people. And obviously, you know, some of us have come, some of us has, have gone. I mean, the group has certainly morphed that I've worked with. And as we were working in Strike Debt Bay Area and in touch with people who were working in Strike Debt New York, there was kind of a subgroup of us who said, you know what, we, we need to organize debtors unions. That's what we need to do. That's the goal here. Um, so yeah, we've been working on that in an, in an explicit way, meaning in a, in a said out loud to one another way, since I would say about 2013, 2014. And it was out of that work so which you can probably hear from my narration is primarily activist work, right? I, um, that this particular paper came. A group of us co-founded um, an activist organization called the Debt Collective, where we organized debtors unions. And this white paper actually came out of the need, which is sort of a quixotic need if there ever was one, you know, for those of us who might want to dispossess banks to ask for money, <laughs> but actually to try to get some money to fund the work that we do. So it was a white paper produced out of the deeply compromised need to address mostly liberal funders to ask if they would be willing to fund what we do, which in my mind, when I read that paper, that background is very clear to me. I have articulated um, ideas. For example, the way I articulate intersectionality in that paper is not a way I would articulate intersectionality necessarily if I was just writing for myself. Certainly not. Like right now, we're actually writing something for Haymarket Press. It's not how I articulate it when I write it for Haymarket, but it is a way that I wanted to articulate it um, for a kind of imagined audience of liberal to potentially progressive donors who might um, 
help us continue to do the work before it becomes a viable membership organization like um, traditional labor unions. So I think I'll stop there. Wow, that was really um, clarifying because having read the text, it's, yeah, it now really uh, makes sense to me where, where it was coming from. Um, and just to bring <laughs> just to bring our listeners into that as well, um, let's just discuss kind of the overall main argument of the book, um, which is basically, if I may kind of break it down into two parts, one part is, um, and you say this in the beginning, that more of us share debt um, with each other than a factory floor. Um, and the second part is that because we all share debt um, and because there's such a massive amount of debt, it's you have $13.5 trillion in the third quarter of 2018. Um, if all these debtors could come together, debt would stop being a liability and um, perhaps it could become something like leverage or something like power. Um, so could you just go more into both of those points for our listeners and just tell us what the significance is of each of them and how you came to them? Absolutely. And I thank you for framing that question so lucidly. And I will definitely go into that right before I do. I do just want to mention, so I did not write this white paper on my own. Um, I do have two co-authors who are so fabulous. So I just want to mention them briefly. And if people do click on the book, you'll, you'll see very brief bios of each of us. But um, my dear colleague and graduate student, Sa Whitley, is in the process of completing a fabulous ethnographic dissertation on the aftermath of foreclosure in Baltimore, and specifically people who identify as Black women kind of remaking speculative sociality in the aftermath of the race and gendered foreclosure crisis, and Sa has written a really fabulous dissertation and was instrumental in so much of our thinking in this paper on questions of um, debt, race, and gender. So I want to mention Saw quickly. And then Caitlin, I also want to men mention, who's an advisor to the SEC, to the Exter Securities and Exchange Commission on derivatives enforcement issues. So um, she's actually previously worked in finance as a credit, credit derivatives market maker and portfolio manager. She's now getting a PhD in heterodox economics. Um, so I had these two um, co-authors, and I think the three of us together, you know, come from very different uh, perspectives on this work. But I think all of our, as I start to talk about the argument of the book, I just want to be sure that um, that everybody knows about Saw and Caitlin if they don't, in fact, read the first page. Um, so yeah, the argument of the book, the first thing I'll say about the argument that you summarized so nicely, right, which is this idea that we no longer share factory floors, or many of us no longer share factory floors, but we share forms of indebtedness, meaning we share relationship to large creditors. Um, and that what might it mean in terms of political power that this is a shared condition, that argument is the argument of the debt collective. And it is an argument that was first articulated, as I came to know it, by strike debt, which is to say there is a kind of form of um, proprietary knowledge production in the academy that's like, what's your new idea? <laughs> you know, and what is this awesome um, analysis that has sprung forth from your, you know, given academics, like amazing head? And I think that... Um, writ large, that's problematic, but in a, in a much narrower sense and more pertinent to this particular piece of writing, social movements have produced sort of the most cutting edge radical analytical knowledge for so long. And of course, many of the academic fields that 
some of us are in or walk next to, you know, I'm thinking of gender studies, feminist studies, post-colonial studies, um, African-Americans, any kind of ethnic studies department, all of those come out of social movements, right? Like very directly, the founding knowledge on which they are based is knowledge that was, was forged in social movements. So I just want to be very clear that that argument, which I'm about to clarify, I hope, is an argument, an insight, a political strategy um, that came out of social movements and that we just wrote down here. So I don't want to claim any authorship over that at all. And that's complicated in academia and in a podcast that's about a book version kind of thing that I wrote in some way. But So I'll just say that first. And the second thing I'll say is just that, the, so the argument is as follows, exactly as you said. So, you know, there is a kind of history it's often called class politics. I think it's far more than class politics, but there's a history of class politics that, of course, takes this idea of the worker at its center, and that worker is always raced and gendered as well, right? So um, Donna Haraway and Anand Singh write very elegantly about sort of the, the raced and gendered um, identity of the Manchester worker, right? Marx's, Marx's worker figure. Um, but this idea, you know, the sort of simple provocation of labor unions is that workers, often not qualified, but of course some workers share factory floors. And insofar as industrial capitalism is centered infrastructurally in terms of where surplus value is created in the corporate form, in the factory, right? This um, gives workers a tremendous amount of power and leverage over the production of profit. And this, we might say, historically has given us the weekend. It has given us child labor laws. It has given us, you know, health care provided by work. In other words, the sort of fantastic successes of the labor movement over time, um, precisely because of that power that they wield, right, in their ability to threaten or enact a strike, to threaten or enact work stoppage. And in, in exchange for what? In exchange for a renegotiation of their contract, right? The general strike is a slightly different thing. But here I'm talking about like very specific targeted labor strikes. What they ask is that we renegotiate the terms of the contract, whatever those terms may be, how much we're paid, how much time we get off, if we get sick leave, if we get benefits, right? That, that's the sort of um, small aim of a, of a specific labor strike. So what happens as industrial capitalism shapeshifts, right? What happens when the spatialities of industrial capitalism move across global supply chains? What happens with radical industrial decline in the U.S., for example? Um, one of the things that happens is, you know, some of us, although fewer and fewer of us, share factory floors. Some of us, although fewer and fewer of us, have living wages that were hard won through class struggle, and part of that class struggle being sort of formalized, unionized labor struggle, right? What some people will call union wages. Fewer and fewer of us have those. But of course, the cost of living continues to go up. Um, and one of the ways that in the U.S. in particular, though, you know, it's, it's broader than the U.S., though I want to be clear that that's the sort of the primary geography that I'm talking about in this paper or book or whatever we want to call it, is that for a variety of historical conjunctures that we can talk about, credit and democratized, quote unquote, access to credit comes to stand in for what may otherwise have been rising wages, which is to say with deindustrialization, with sort of very active elite social movements 
you know, to union bust, both, you know, at sort of like a legislative and Supreme Court level on down. Um, it's very difficult to, f- to fund your cost of living um, with your wage. And a lot of people, and even me, like many of us, kind of certainly at the beginning of Occupy Wall Street, there was a lot of um, like financial profligacy morality that came along with this. It's like, yeah, like all of a sudden everybody needed to own two cars and move to the suburb and like have a flat screen television in every room and everybody wanted to belong to a gym, right? Like all of this kind of moralizing language around consumption. And that actually, when we look at sort of the archival histories, when we look at the empirical histories, certainly when we look at the the statistics of household indebtedness, we find that it's not people going into debt for their flat screen televisions, which precisely for the global supply chain reasons I just described are actually only like 150 bucks, right? So you're rarely going into debt for something like that. What are you going into debt for? You're going into debt for medical care, right? Because you can't actually pay for the medical care you need. It caused far more than 50%. It was like upwards of 60% of bankruptcies in the United States over the last several decades. So you're going into debt for your medical care, starting most profoundly in the 2000s. So somewhat more recently, you're going into debt for a college education. Um, So student debt right now, outstanding student debt is at $1.6 trillion. In 1999, it was too insignificant to measure. And today it is second only to mortgage debt. You know, if you're privileged enough to have access to a mortgage, then you're going into debt certainly for your housing. Rent, you know, you're, you're paying rent too, even if you're not trying to buy, even if you're not a debt owner in that particular way. And increasingly, we're looking at fines and fees in the criminal punishment system, right? So with mass incarceration also comes the sort of... Um, I don't even know what to call it, like pernicious fact of going into debt for paying for your own ankle monitor, paying for your own drug and alcohol testing, paying your own parole officer, even in some states, paying for your room and board, quote unquote, while you're locked up in a cage. So all of the, and so that's why I I put democratized access to credit in in quotes (laughs) before, because democratized access to credit essentially meant that people had to go into debt um, for the basic things that they needed to survive, right? It's not going into debt for your flat screen television. It's not going into debt for your second car. It's going into debt for the things that I just described. So the idea then, the provocation then is to say, okay, well, there is this mass indebtedness. It is massively unequal indebtedness. And I assume we can talk about that at another point. And it's traditionally seen especially in the line of work that I come from and that you come from, I would say, you know, people use words like financialization and people use words like neoliberalism. And it's seen as this moment of radical um, depoliticization and a moment of sort of the foreclosure of political possibility. And that's a word I use in the white paper. And it's a word I use here. Of course, it's a kind of pun on the moment, but the pun is intended, right? So when we hear the words financialization, when we hear the words neoliberalism, I would say the sort of political thrust of them is critical and the political thrust of them is of um, mass disempowerment, right? So people think of unions and the disempowerment of unions, for example, just to give one concrete example of sort of political shift over that time. So the provocation of this white paper, which is the provocation of the debt collective and the provocation of debtors unions more generally, is that this is, in fact, financialization in fact brings us a new form of collective power, 
of potential collective power, which is to say, and we always use this quote by John Paul Getty, sort of one of the most famous robber barons in the history of US capitalism, who said, you know, if you owe the bank $100, the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank $100 million, then you own the bank, right? Student debt alone stands at $1.6 trillion. Student debtors in that case, by J.P. Getty's um, reasoning, have $1.6 trillion of leverage over the lender. Not a bank in this case. This shit gets very complicated. But it is to say that $13.5 trillion in household indebtedness, which is actually a very narrow measure, but that's the, the measure the Fed gives us could be conceived, could be mobilized, could be organized as $13.5 trillion of leverage, right, to begin to demand the new kinds of financial relationships we need. And so the last thing that I'll say is, you know, earlier when I was talking about the kind of leverage that factory workers have over their bosses and over sort of capitalist inequalities writ large, the, the um, what do I want to call it? The sort of magical object in which that power was negotiated was the contract, right? So there is an analogy here too, which is to say that debtors unions can and should renegotiate contracts, right? Lending contracts are racist. Lending contracts are sexist. Lending contracts presume various kinds of informational asymmetries, right? Or sort of like ignorance on the part of the borrower, Debtors unions can and should have the ability to renegotiate contract terms, renegotiate the interest rate, renegotiate if it's adjustable or fixed, renegotiate if you found that there were racist practices in determining all these rates, right? Like all of that very basic stuff, just like labor unions renegotiate specific work contracts. But now thinking more of things like the general strike, right? Generalized worker power just like generalized debtor power, can also have leverage over far more than individual debtor contracts, which is to say leverage over you know, these, these issues that the, that the era of financialization seems to have foreclosed. Like, how do we even pay for things in the first place? How do we pay for our medical care? How do we pay for people to go to college? Do we even want to pay for fucking jails and prisons in the first place? No, most of us involved in an abolitionist framework would say, right? So it's, it is both the power to renegotiate specific contracts and contracts more broadly, but also this power of the general strike here conceived as the general debtor strike. Great. Wow. You know, it's it's not obviously this is an audio podcast. I've been nodding vigorously the whole time. Um, cool. So I thought Thanks. I'd just mention yeah. that. Um, and also just on a on a you know personal note, it seems like a good time to mention I'm actually on strike at the moment with the Harvard Grad Students Union um, renegotiating a contract. And yeah. yeah, we've been like chanting slogans about like how we want a contract. But um, at the same time, you know, we feel the constraint of of kind of making the demand as laborers because um, we are in so many ways like secondary to the to the project of the university, uh, which is like involved in real estate. It's involved in so many other ways that it kind of survives and um, you know gathers prestige and money. Um, and and if yeah, if there could be an alignment between, for example, a graduate student union strike and um, actions taken by undergraduate students against student debt or against kind of the skyrocketing price of education. Um, 
things could be could be a lot more promising um, than they are at the moment. And that that kind of yeah, that kind of thinking is so so urgent, really. Um, yeah. So no, I love. Can I just piggyback um, on that for a minute because I love that you say this. So, mm-hmm. I ag- I agree with you wholeheartedly. And the example of Harvard, right? Like, and the example of how today, you know, and to a certain extent in the past, but so even universities have been transformed in the era of financialization, right? Which is to say, you know, they have always been real estate. Um, <laughs> they have always been dispossessors of various kinds. So that that part isn't necessarily new. But for example, the idea that universities need credit ratings so that they can participate in bond offerings to build fancy new stadiums or to build fancy new hospitals. And in order to secure a top credit rating, the 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 collateral that they bring, the proof that they show to Moody's or to Standard & Poor's or any to, to any of these ratings agencies are, look, we have a captive tuition-paying audience, and we can always raise that tuition if, for some reason, we, we seem unable to pay our bond obligations, right? So the way that the university has financialized precisely makes it imperative that those of us who work at the university as laborers also join with those of us who are linked to the university in relationships of indebtedness or other financial forms. And that, of course, stretches far beyond the university. Most, you know, there was a big GM strike recently, and somebody reached out to, to us to say, you know, GM workers are on strike. GM and many other auto companies now make at least as much, and in some cases, more money financing cars than they do making and selling cars directly. And they were like, imagine if people whose cars are financed through GM refused collectively to pay their monthly payments until GM workers' demands were met, right? So the point is not, oh, no, like capitalism is completely shape-shifted and now it's finance capitalism and non-industrial capitalism, so one has to replace the other. No, 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 no. The point, exactly as you say, is that these are complementary forms of organizing and complementary forms of power building that also allow us, I would say, a much more sort of rigorous understanding of how capitalist institutions work and how those of us who want them to work differently to pay us a fair wage, for example, to pay you a fair wage, I would imagine, in the case of student workers, right, is to say, well, there we have multiple leverage points that we have to work on together. So yes, it's just a long way of saying yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, So this is something you've already touched on, um, but just for listeners who might not, um, you know, or who might want more detail on this, you discuss um, in the text some of the structural and historical conditions which have led to um, skyrocketing debts and debts being necessary for survival. So could you just outline the kind of key um, laws, policies, processes which brought about this moment where debt is necessary for survival? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are a bunch of historical moments that come together to make this happen. Um, And basically, I would say, you know, so you're starting in the 1930s, you're starting with the New Deal, social wage and labor protections, big public works, infrastructure initiatives, the GI Bill, right, different mortgage bills that incentivize real estate driven growth. And then Coming out of the New Deal, but buttressed by the kinds of public infrastructures, highways, universities that are built in that time, then you have this moment often glossed as Fordism, right? So this idea that with strong union presence, people who work on Ford's assembly lines are unalienated labor, right? They make enough to buy, not only to buy the cars that they produce, 
but also to provide for their family. <laughs> now, very intentionally in that story of you know the New Deal through Fordism, I was saying things like they provide for their family, workers can afford the cars they produce. All of this was a sort of virulently patriarchal and white supremacist history in this particular country that of course dates far ba- dates far back before the 1930s which is some of the parts that I I, I didn't put in the <laughs> in the essentially funding proposal to liberal funders um, and we can talk about that deeper history too but it is to say that and I'm actually channeling a little bit of Melinda Cooper's work here she has a really fabulous book on family values it's kind of a rethinking of neoliberalism as not a project about individualization, right? The idea of the entrepreneurial individual needing to be freed, but is actually a kind of slow and steady march of family, sort of racialized and gendered family control, like very much about the family. So sort of the the empirical and archival consonances between the new Christian conservatism that's coming right at the same moment and neoliberalism. It's incredible work, and I would recommend it to anybody, Melinda Cooper, Family Values. But so, so you have this march for white men, essentially, right? Assu- imagined as heads of heteronormative households in the United States through in the 1930s to the 1950s, which at the same time is profoundly deepening already existing forms of racial capitalism in the United States, whether that's sort of like the attempted genocide and land dispossession and theft from indigenous people, you know, whether that's sort of the... Um, ongoing force of blackness in particular as a as a, a material force whiteness certainly also is a material force in u.s culture um, but the idea of african heritage being like literally devalued in all kinds of different financial markets trade markets etc so in the 1960s and 70s you have a series of social movements that say fuck this right that point out that Fordism has been a white supremacist project that point out that it's been a, a, um, a, a, a patriarchal project, right? So you have the, a feminist movement, you have a civil rights movement, and part of what they start demanding is inclusion, understandably, in these forms of social wage and in these, in these forms of material provision that came from the 30s to the 50s, essentially only to white men, and even some white men at that. It certainly wasn't all white men. At this moment, you also have like a sustained economic crisis of the 1970s. You have the oil shock, high interest rates, right? At the time that all of these communities who have previously been excluded from credit markets are, cl- are clamoring to get in. So it's this intersection, which is social movement demands on the one hand. It's the particular kind of political economic conjuncture of the 1970s and the threat of class backlash, right? And in which public policy says we are going to actively promote finance as a solution to the problem of distribution that we have right now. So this is the time then you start to see sort of like radical rollbacks. Some people call it deregulation of financial markets. I don't think that makes any sense. It's just new kinds of regulation. So it's re-regulation of financial markets that now says, for example, that forms of household indebtedness can, indebtedness can be traded on secondary markets, right? That's starting to take down barriers between commercial banks and investment banks, et cetera. You also have all the wage stagnation because you have all of the um, sort of keeping down uh, the the um, whatever the various Supreme Court decisions, the various pieces of uh, federal and national legislation, anti-union national and federal legislation. 
And then finally, you also have a kind of shift, I mean, related to this, but you have a shift, especially as you get later into the 70s, a shift in the corporate form, which is increasingly moving toward shareholder value and away from um, a sort of larger, you know, what some people will call like a stakeholder value view of the corporation. And so what this means is it coincides or it tracks CEO pay rising, everybody else's pay stagnating. So just at the time that you have a bunch more communities clamoring to get in to markets and housing, clamoring to get in for credit, clamoring to get in, we want access to what has essentially been white serving institutions of higher education in this country, and you have people's wages flatlining, and people don't have union protections, what you have is is the government saying, okay, like here, everybody get credit, everybody buy on credit. Um, the government and, you know, banks and financial institutions working working together on this. And I will say, you know, especially in my ethnographic work on people who worked in Occupy Wall Street, people who worked on Wall Street and then became part of Occupy Wall Street, a lot of them remember this transition, which, which un- unrolled over a series of decades. They say this was the democratization of credit, right? So like, I remember I worked with a guy who I think in the article I call, I think I call him Patrick or something, right? So he was raised in an Irish Catholic family somewhere on the East Coast. He had seven brothers and sisters. They were a working class family. And like, if one of the brothers and sisters needed to go to the dentist, then the parents couldn't make the car payment, right? So he remembered sort of this very profound austerity, not having as much as they needed. So in his, he understood very um, deeply his own work on Wall Street that was loosening up credit, that was giving people access to credit who didn't have it before, he understood it as helping families like his own not be in those forms of austerity and precarity. But all of these forms of inclusion are were also forms of predatory inclusion, right? So like depending on your race in particular, it varied less with class, horrifyingly, depending on your race in particular, your interest rate would change, whether your mortgage was prime or subprime would change, right? Even controlling for income even controlling for credit score. So it is to say that while this man I called Patrick understood it as the democratization of credit, and I think there were many people, so I'm meaning I don't want to phrase it as a kind of cabal, because I think many people understood, many people working in government, many people working on Wall Street understood it as a, as a sort of ethical and maybe even sort of progressive political commitment without um, understanding or seeing clearly (laughs) the terms on which this inclusion, especially for communities of color in this country, the terms on which this inclusion um, was offered. And those those terms were more often than not predatory and prejudiced. So I I say that's, that's a long explanation of that conjuncture, but that's what I'd say. Okay. Um, and could you kind of talk more about like the features of debt and indebtedness, the kind of racialized features of it, as you start mentioning? Um, what? So for example, if you take the 2008 mortgage crisis, what are the key forms of predatory inclusion that we see um, that maybe many people, you know, are still undergoing and is, I don't think, widely understood, as widely understood as it should be um, as a form of predatory inclusion rather than all these other narratives that circulate about, um, you know, uh, borrowers not knowing how much they can pay back and kind of um, living beyond their means um, and all this stuff that's said. Um, So in in what way can we understand uh, the 2008 mortgage crisis as a crisis of predatory inclusion? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing I'll say is that the wonderful thinker, professor, political being, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, just came out with a Mm -hmm. book 
where she theorizes predatory inclusion at length. And she doesn't, it's kind of like, what lays the groundwork in real estate markets for the kinds of predatory inclusion that happened in 2008, but that have long predated it. So she gives us a kind of like archaeology of the present in terms of the forms of predatory inclusion that um, typified the 2008 crash. But what I'll say, you know, I'll just give a quick example. And and I I just did, I said part of it in, in my last answer, which is black women in particular were offered subprime versus prime mortgages. And these, again, this is a difference in the terms of inclusion. So a prime mortgage might have a fixed rate. It might have um, a, a rate that's guaranteed to stay below a certain percentage, even if it varies somewhat, right? That Whereas, let's say, a subprime mortgage is often an adjustable rate mortgage, so it gives you a fixed term for the first X number of years, 10 years, 15 years, years, but then there's a ballooning interest rate sometime later in the contract. Or So th- there are a bunch of different kind of technical ways or technical differences between a prime mortgage and a subprime mortgage. But if you take two potential mortgage borrowers, if they have the exact same income and the exact same credit score, right, which is essentially a proxy for saying like, or we are taught that the credit score is a proxy for um, likelihood of paying back, right? So it's the way that, that creditors are kind of great, sorry, that debtors are graded. If you take two identical people in terms of income and credit score, and one is a black woman and one is not a black woman. It all doesn't matter who the other person is, but to heighten the contrast, let's say the other person is a white man, that black woman, I have the statistic in the paper, I don't know it offhand, but is some outrageous percentage more likely to be offered a subprime loan than the white man, even though the relevant financial criteria are identical, right? So it is far more likely with an adjustable rate mortgage when, as the securities market begins to destabilize and people's home values begin to go down and they find themselves underwater, quote unquote, right, paying more for the house than its market value, right, that subprime loan starts to look a lot worse, starts to be a a much uh, worse investment, right, than even the prime loan, even if both of those people are underwater, right? Because if if your interest rate balloons and you're already underwater, in other words, your home price is already uh, less on the market than it is for the mortgage that you're paying for, then you um, are in a a much worse financial position than your, in this case, white counterpart who has a prime loan. So that's just one example of how predatory inclusion worked in the 2008 crisis and where you see it most clearly. And I think where we talk about it, well, one of the places you see it most clearly just are in the sort of exponential um, growth of wealth divides by racialized category, right? So like the black wealth, what black white wealth divide looked like X before the mortgage crisis. And it looks like, you know, X to the ninth power after the mortgage crisis. So black communities, Latinx communities, indigenous communities lose a shocking amount of total wealth in the wake of the mortgage crisis. White communities do as well. Majority white communities do as well. But you see in the Fed statistics that they begin to recoup it much more quickly than these other communities do. And part of that is because for those other communities who were so long excluded from those kinds of markets, their their balance sheets, their household assets, housing is generally a much larger proportion of their household asset balance sheet than it is for a white family who has much more intergenerational wealth to draw on. Again, that's a, that's a, a large generalization and is certainly not true like 
in in every family in every case, but it is sort of aggr it is true in the aggregate. Um, and the other thing that I'll just say or point people to in the in the white paper that saw Whitley was was um, central in in bringing to my attention. So I just talked about you know like looking at the the sort of ramifications of the crisis and its aftermath. But Bloomberg Business Week ran a cover. Let's see, it was in March 2013 called the Great American Housing Rebound. And it's essentially this wildly racist uh, cartoon showing three women, what appear to be three women and one man. The three of the women are, are caricatured in ways that have historically been used to caricature, caricature people of color in this country. The man appears to, who appears to be a man appears to be an African-American man, sort of like it's 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 almost impossible to describe the racism in this cartoon, but I would encourage everybody to go to it. It's on page 22 of the paper, right? To talk about the ways that all of these tropes that have characterized household finance and household finance policy in this country, like the welfare queen, for example, right? Come back up in this moment of predatory inclusion, but in the most kind of licit of places, right? This is a cover of Bloomberg Business Week. This isn't like some weird alt-right site. Um, so I guess that's, um, some of what I'll say. And, you know, in this, in the thing we're writing for Haymarket now, which I think is, is important to say, we do have to think, especially in this country, those, these histories are profoundly transnational, but especially in the United States, we have to think about the much deeper histories of racial capitalism that make these forms of intergenerational wealth transfer on the one hand, or intergenerational debt transfer, on the other hand, possible. And those deeper histories are not in this paper, um, in part, as I said, because I kind of imagined it for a liberal funder audience. So I, I, you know, I didn't know if they would find that material. But to a more kind of academic audience, to a more politicized audience, I think that, that those deeper histories are super important. Great. Thank you. Um, I think this also brings us to you know what is the what is to be done question which we've touched upon um theoretically but we can talk about the specific example of the debt collective um, which you do in the in the last chapter of the paper um and you mention you basically describe the um action that debt collective started with um and then the success of the action and the lessons learned from it um and the lessons learned from it include um, things about how movements against debt can work and need to work with um, intersectional movement movements against various other kinds of racism. Um, so could you just talk about kind of the debt collective experience, um, tell us a little bit about what it was and then the lessons that we should take from it, both um, for strategy and the strengths and the kind of challenges that one can anticipate facing? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'll say, so in 2014, um, some of the founding members of the Debt Collective had been, had been involved in a project called the Rolling Jubilee. And the Rolling Jubilee was a project in which a group of people got together and um, sort of jumped through the legal and regulatory hoops to become a debt collector, a, a legal debt collector, and then crowdsourced money online and entered into these secondary and tertiary markets where like defaulted debt circulates, right? So if I don't pay my medical bill, the hospital sends it off, sells it actually quite literally to a debt collector. And then the debt collector starts calling me and the hospital doesn't 
um, own that debt anymore. They have, they've used it as a write-off and the debt collector now is trying to make a profit by collecting from me. So the, the Rolling Jubilee became a debt collector, was buying all this defaulted debt for pennies on the dollar on these secondary and tertiary markets. But then rather than, you know, calling the, the debtor and saying, you owe this to me, they were abolishing it. And most of the debt that the Rolling Jubilee project bought was medical debt. Medical debt is readily available in large amounts on these secondary and tertiary markets. Student debt is not because the vast majority of student debt is issued by the federal government. However, there is a small amount of student debt that's issued by private lenders. More debt issued by private lenders emanates from for-profit colleges. And so the Rolling Jubilee Project bought a portfolio of what were called tuition receivables from a group of students who were... um, owed debts, owed money to what was then the second largest for-profit college chain in the country, Corinthian Colleges. This group of, so when we contacted these people to say, hey, you know, we've abolished your debts, a group of us by that time were working toward debtors unions. They were already organizing, feeling that they had been defrauded by the schools, paid an exorbitant amount of money to for-profit colleges for degrees that were completely worthless and not getting them jobs. And they were hoping to file a class action lawsuit. But as most of us do every day whenever we sign any kind of contract, we often are signing away our rights to a class action lawsuit, and they had all done that. So we began working with this group of people who were already organized um, to think about sort of finding our way to a pilot debtors union. And eventually, I mean, there was a lot of legal training, there was a lot of media training, there was so much that went on, but eventually the 15 people who were basically already defaulting on their debts and suffering the consequences individually came forward calling themselves the Corinthian 15 and making a collective case to refuse to pay the debts. So they re- they you know have this all this language that's like to the Department of Education, we owe you nothing. To the loan servicers, we owe you nothing. Um, it, it was very popular. The media picked it up. Thousands and thousands of people from mostly for-profit colleges all around the country called the debt collective and said, we want to join, we want to join. When we described the incredibly harsh consequences of choosing to stop repaying your debts. Most people who were still in good standing, as they call it, or who were still repaying chose not to. We ended up making a legal tool called Defense to Repayment, which was basically a kind of activation of a little-known provision in the Department of Education Code um, that allowed students to dispute their debts legally, in other words, without intentionally suffering the consequences of um, willful non-payment. And over the course of, gosh, you know, I think it was like 12 or 13 months, about 80,000 people filled out that tool. Um, The Department of Education at that point under Obama eventually kind of stole that tool from us and put it up on their website. It changed federal policy to the extent that when the Trump regime came into power, Betsy DeVos, who was his secretary of education, had to kind of deal with this landslide, which at that point, you know, was growing to 150,000, 200,000 applications, defense to repayment. Our strikers met with the Department of Education. They met with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Elizabeth Warren at that point. Um, but to date, just to fast forward, that union, our for our pilot debtors union, has won over $1.5 billion in debt cancellation. So that means that not only for people who have won it have their future debts been abolished, but many of them have actually gotten paid back, reimbursed from the federal government what they had paid toward those loans already. So, you know, that was a tremendous victory. And then more recently, just this past summer, when Ilhan Omar, Pramila Jayapal, and, uh, oh, who's the third author? It's Ilhan Omar, Pramila Jayapal, I don't remember, and Bernie Sanders as well, induced their College for All legislation, which would, on the one hand, discharge all $1.6 trillion of student debt 
and make public college free again on the back end, when they announced that legislation, they invited some of our debtors to to announce that legislation with them in Washington, D.C., which is to say that the nation's first debtors union, which was led by students who held debt from for-profit colleges, which was never intended to make a bad apples argument about for-profit colleges, right? And didn't end, but eventuated quite literally in an announcement of a kind of federal legislation that I never thought possible in my lifetime, which is that 1.6 trillion in debt abolition plus free college on the back end, right? You see the Sanders electoral campaign making the same argument about medical debt and public medical care on the back end, right? So I actually think that this kind of debtor organizing has been incredibly productive, incredibly quickly at a national scale. Um, So on the one hand, I think we feel emboldened and excited by the potentials. On the other hand, just to answer the other part of your question, you know, in, in the very beginning of the conversation we had, you were talking about class and the ways in which class too often drops out of both our intellectual projects these days and our political projects these days. And I think, you know, of course, there are very um, profound reasons for that. And I think one of the most profound reasons for that in this country specifically, and given the history of class agitation in this country, and here I'm thinking of Robin Kelly's work, Hammer and Ho, right? I'm thinking of Michael Dawson, Blacks in and out of the left, is because class work historically made arguments like we're all workers. And so we're all in the same boat and we all share power. And the danger here is to say, we're all debtors. We're all in the same boat. So we all share this potential power. And on the one hand, that's true. Household indebtedness is massive and systemic. But on the other hand, it's not true because it is massively unequal and it is unequally divided, especially across racial categories, but also across gender categories. So that refrain, that class refrain, we're all in the same boat. It's our sort of commonality that gives us power has been an incredibly insidious argument historically, especially for African-American worker power in this country. And so I, I, I would say that debtor organizing really runs up like runs the same risk of recapitulating that profound empirical error, political error, um, sort of uh, error of the soul, right? Error of the sort of center of analysis if it doesn't foreground the radically unequal and radically different histories that different communities have had in this country and certainly far beyond it in terms of material provision. So it's that question and you know, I th- this has bedeviled the left in this country for a long time, and I don't think it should. And I think the moment we're in is the moment to say this can no longer be a division. Do we organize around class or do we organize around race? Fuck that. It is a false division. It doesn't make any sense. Read up on your racial capitalism, right? Read up on Robin Kelly. Read up on your Cheryl Harris and understand that class positions are always lived through racialized subjectivities. Racialized subjectivities are always lived through class subjectivities, gender, sexuality, et cetera, right? That is a real political and materialist argument. And if we don't make that argument and if we don't use it to frame primarily the kind of organizing what we do will fail. And so that I think is, it's a potential, but it's also a danger. Great. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. Um, Just to conclude, um, I I know you already mentioned a book with Haymarket. I know that you have a book actually coming out, um, your academic book coming out um, with your research in Equatorial Guinea. Um, So what are the things that you're working on at the moment, whether it be um, an academic or a political project? 
Um, and where do you, yeah, where are you going to go next? I mean, this has been an amazing like corpus of kind of scholarship and um, and activism that that really like is relevant and matters. Um, so yeah, w- what next? Yeah, I, thank you for those kind words. I'll say, so in my activist hat, the Debt Collective has just soft launched a sort of um, broadening of the student debt strike. So if you go to strike.debtcollective, all one word, .org, strike.debtcollective.org, you'll come to a page that says end student debt, join the strike. We're soft launching it now. um, But yeah, in my activist hat, this is what we're working on, pushing at this point um, the College for All legislation. I'm not really an electoral politics person, but this is a demand that came directly from social movements. And so I'm thrilled to take credit for it, not personally, but right, like allow those social movements to take credit for it and then support its passage into law. So we're working toward that end and then also doing a bunch of stuff on housing and medical care and stuff. So that um, is what's going on in the activist space in addition to the Haymarket book. So we're writing a... um, a manifesto of sorts. The Debt Collective is writing a manifesto for Hanging Market. And yeah, the book that I talked about way back when in this lovely opportunity to talk to your listeners um, is the product of my dissertation in on U.S. oil companies in Equatorial Guinea. And it's called The Licit Life of Capitalism. And it in fact just came out. I just got my author copies about three days ago wow. with Duke Press. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah, super exciting. So that's great. And my new kind of more legibly academic project is on Pan-African banking and thinking about global inequality and global finance, high finance, specifically with the African continent at the center rather than at the periphery. So I've been doing work with sort of major African financial institutions, and I use Africa intentionally as a sort of a scalar provocation, a provocation of the scale of the continent, thinking sort of with W.E.B. Du Bois. And yeah, I'm just at the very, very beginning of that work. And I guess the last thing I'll say is Ananya Roy, who has for a very long time at a distance been a a mentor of mine um, and somebody I looked up to for a long time, um, came to UCLA the second year that I was here and started an incredible institute called the Institute on Inequality and Democracy. And it's an institute that takes very seriously this idea, this fact that social movements produce cutting edge political, theoretical, analytical knowledge and works in in ways that, that I are unprecedented as, as far as I've understood the academy um, to put scholarly work that emanates from social movements and scholarly work that emanates from the academy into dialogue with one another um, and into more than dialogue, into action. So I also just took up a position as the associate faculty director of that institute, which has allowed me to um, you know, start putting together some events. And I'll just end with one of those, which is that here at UCLA on February 7th, we have an event called Financial Futures, Higher Education and Reparative Public Goods that kind of takes college for all as a starting point to think about how we might finance the kinds of reparative public goods we need in this country and transnationally, and what are the social movements that have led us to this moment. So there'll be people there from Fees Must Fall in South Africa. There'll be people there from anti-austerity struggles in Puerto Rico, people from the Red Nation. So I don't know when this podcast will air, but either look for that prospectively, and we'd love to welcome people here to UCLA for that event, or look for it retrospectively to see, see what happened. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I look forward to having you back here uh, with your multiple upcoming projects and books. Um, And thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.